With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. When I was able to work in cafes, like sitting there with a laptop, I actually would sometimes say to me, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you a question? Yeah, pardon me, I'm a translator. And it would always be something like, okay, you know how if someone asks you a question and instead of saying, I don't know, you say, uh, so what is that called? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Rahman Alam. Rahman, the voice we just heard belongs to Damien Searles, who is a writer of both original works and translations, though today the focus is on translating. I'm very excited about this conversation. Uh, but before we get to Damien, I know from previous episodes that some of your favourite books are works that first appeared in languages other than English. As a reader, do you think you approach translations differently from works that were written in English? I think I did, or long have, you know, and that this conversation with Damien challenged how I think about this. Mm. You know, I had this lingering sense that was probably imparted to me by some know-it-all who once said something like this to me, but that to read a work not in its native tongue is somehow not the same. That it isn't as good, that it doesn't count, but even as I say that, it seems like nonsense, you know? Like, I can't learn French well enough to read Balzac, you know, never mind learning Japanese or something. I'm just not smart enough, and there's just not enough time. You are smart enough to do anything, Ramon, so I just want to challenge that. I'm going to give some pushback. But yeah, time and choices, I, I will I will permit. Um, so who is Damien Searles, and what has he written and translated? So Damien has translated more than 40 books from German, from French, from Norwegian, and from Dutch, including the works of six winners of the Nobel Prize in literature. Damien also works in English. He edited a volume of Henry David Thoreau's journal, and his own writing includes a book of short stories called What We Were Doing and Where We Were Going, and a biography and cultural history called The Inkblots, which tells the story of the creator of the Rorschach test. Wow. And what was your relationship with his work before this interview happened? Well, in 2018, Damien's translation of a work known as Anniversaries, which is a set of four novels by the German writer, oh gosh, now I have to pronounce his name, Uwe Janssen, uh, was published in this country. And in her review in the Times, Pearl Sagel wrote, it is a novel that swallows reality as noisy and demanding as the world itself which is really quite an endorsement. Quite. But actually, I think I met Damien sort of indirectly because his publisher 
for his translation of Patrick Modiano is Yale University Press. And I think Damien had seen me praise Modiano's writing on Twitter and had asked the publisher to send me a copy of that book when it appeared. So we had this kind of very collegial exchange through the mail. It seems very old-fashioned. Um, <laughs> and it was so lovely. So I've always remembered that. And I'm so glad I was able to speak to him for this show. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward. Before we get to the interview, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members will hear a little something extra from your conversation. What will that be? I did that thing that I love to do on this show, which is ask our experts about their kind of dream projects. Mm -hmm. And you'll also hear Damien talk a little bit about how he has spent his time in quarantine. And I can pretty much guarantee it's going to make you feel like you have not been working hard <laughs> enough in your own quarantine. That, well, that's pretty easy. But uh, if languages are involved, I am extra ready to be wowed. Okay, listeners, if you aren't yet a member of Slate Plus, I just want to know, what are you waiting for? Support Slate's journalism, get ad-free podcasts and access to exclusive content like those great extra questions. To do so, just go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear Roman's conversation with Damien Searles. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Damien. You're a writer and a translator, but I'm principally interested in the latter. So I'm going to begin with a really basic question, which is how many languages do you speak? <laughs> uh, well, first, thanks for having me here. And I'll begin with the really basic answer, but it's not really the right question um, because I only write in one language, which is English. And I think people often think that being a translator is much more about knowing the other language you're going from, as opposed to being able to write well in the language you're actually producing a book in. So I translate from several languages, but I don't speak them all perfectly. I'm not a native speaker of any of them. I didn't grow up bilingual or anything. So it's in a way a little less impressive than it sounds to translate <laughs> from multiple languages, because as long as I can read them, the question is how well can I kind of give that out in an English text. So I translate from three or four, German, French, Norwegian, and Dutch. German is the foreign language I know best. French, 
I've lived in France, I can speak it okay. The other ones I read more than I speak. You know, I probably would have trouble like ordering a hamburger in a restaurant in Norway, except that they all speak English. Right. <laughs> it's so interesting to me that you are talking about an ability with these languages that has to do with them yielding to you on the page, but not necessarily functioning in daily life. As you said, like, could you make a grocery list in Norwegian? Could you order in a restaurant in the Netherlands? So what is that tension? And, you know, am I wrong in thinking that the sort of like elementary education model of foreign language in this country anyway, really prioritizes an ability to speak as opposed to read. I kind of think there are different ways that you can learn a language. And I mean, I know people who never read a grammar book or a textbook and just like take a trip to Barcelona and go for it. Uh, or used to when trips were possible. Right. And there are other people who don't learn kind of in conversation, but who like to do the exercises and memorize the endings and all that kind of thing. And I think, you know, language instruction in the U.S. is pretty bad and it starts much later than it should because kids learn languages really easily. And there's certainly um, other ways you could do it. But I think that in college or as a grown-up, if you're trying to learn a language, you can just sort of find the method that works for you, especially now that there's YouTube. So yeah. if you decide to learn, you know, Arabic, you could spend all day, every day for the rest of your life watching children's books read Arabic or news broadcasts or whatever, and just have all that language flown into your ears if that's how you learn it. What was your particular path and was... Was it German that was your first experience of non-English? Yeah, um, you know, my first experience was probably the Spanish on Sesame Street. Um, I guess my first, first experience, my mother only spoke English at home, but grew up Jewish in South Africa. So there was a certain amount of Hebrew, Yiddish, Afrikaans, other languages that were out there. And I kind of, you know, knew that there wasn't just one language in the world from the beginning, but I didn't grow up mm -hmm. speaking any of those. I took Latin in middle school. I took French at some point for a year or two and never really liked it. I took a year of Russian sort of freshman year as a requirement. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so I knew about cases and endings and, you know, the fact that there are different languages. Yeah. But then I took my first German class near the end of college mm -hmm. because I was a philosophy major and writing about a German philosopher and wanted to read him in the original and, you know, also liked German writers, Kafka, mm -hmm. Rilke, that kind of thing. You said something that I'm so struck by at the very outset of our conversation, which is that to some extent your work as a translator relies on you having an ability to work as a writer, full stop, in English, which is the language we're talking about, but just that that it's about being a writer as much as it is about sort of technically transposing a word or phrase from a different language into our own. Is the act of translation technical or creative, or is it both? Yeah, I, I think it's more creative. You know, 
you usually know what it means in the original, or if you don't, you can ask someone. You can check another dictionary, you can talk to a native speaker. If you have some kind of antenna and are tuned into, wait, I must be missing something here. Like this can't be what's going on. Then you can ask someone, hey, is this an idiom that I haven't run across or, or whatever. So the hard part is really rarely understanding you know, the kind of what the word means, which is sort of, I think, the level that most people who haven't done translation or haven't really thought about translation think in terms of. It's like you have to be a dictionary who, who figures out what it means. But what's really going on is you have to figure out how to say it in a different language. So even on that word level, you really often like know what it is, but you don't know what it's called. So like, here's an example. Um, like in an old fashioned elevator with an elevator operator, there's the metal door that's attached to the actual building. And then in the elevator that goes up and down, there's another kind of expandable wooden clattery kind of gate. So what is that called? That's the translation problem. Like you read it and some you know character turns around to face the whatever this is. And you don't want to say face the front or face the door because that kind of loses some of the texture. You know, that clattery gate thing is so evocative of, you know, ele old elevators 40 years ago. So, so what do you call it? What is it? You know what it is, but what's it called? Yeah. And then how do you look it up? Because you don't know what it is. <laughs> so you can do a, an image search on for parts of elevator or something, but like, <laughs> You know, that might not actually work. Yeah. Um, and so that's, the, even on the word level, you know, not talking about voice or yeah. rhythm or anything like that. That's what the kind of translation problem. Do you know what it is? No, what is it called? Now I'm dying to know. What it's called is a scissor gate. Because oh, okay. if you picture like yeah, pairs of scissors, scissors up and yeah, down, sure. like expanding yeah. into the diamond yeah. and closing. Yeah. So, I mean, I actually when I was able to work in cafes, like sitting there with a the laptop and a dictionary site and working on it. And I actually would sometimes say to me, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you a question? Yeah, pardon me, I'm a translator. Um, do you mind if I ask you a question? And it would always be something like, okay, you know how if someone asks you a question and instead of saying, I don't know, you say, uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is that called? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you were writing that yeah. someone replied, uh, yeah. they're not grunting, they're not like whining, they're not kind of slurring, you know, yeah. there are a half dozen ways I could describe that, but which one is best for this book right. or this character in this book? Yeah. Right. So I want to hear just about like the, the very basic process, you, you know, you mentioned this already, but you've got to read the work first and then do you break it into its component parts do you go sentence by sentence do you talk to the writer do you talk to other scholars do you consult a contemporary dictionary do you consult uh you know if you're working on a, a german novel from the 20s are you looking at a german dictionary from the 1910s you know like how is that working i don't talk to authors when they're dead um <laughs> and i personally have sort of ended up doing a bunch of kind of canonical literature yeah. so a lot of dead 
dead writers, yeah. um, which means though that there's scholarship. So in other words, I'm not gonna ask Thomas Mann what he thinks, but there are 8,000 books about yeah. this Thomas Mann story I could read if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, if someone has hired me to do a book that they wanna do and I haven't read it yet, I probably won't read the whole thing first. I'll just do it as I go along because why take the time to mm -hmm. read it another time mm -hmm. when I'm gonna be reading it so closely as yeah. I go through. But usually I have some context for it. I, it's either a new work by an author I've translated before or at least an author I've read or you know something. Yeah. Or I've read the first 20 pages of the book before agreeing to do the translation. Mm -hmm. You know if it's me coming to a publisher saying this is my favorite book and it hasn't been translated, like, can we please do it? Then of course I have read it before yeah. already. Yeah. So you sort of touched on this before that part of your territory as a translator has been working with canonical writers and texts. And I want to ask you a little bit about a really big project that you worked on it was published in, in English in this country in 2018 by New York Review Books called Anniversaries. It's a quartet of German novels rendered for the first time completely um, into English by you. It is about 1,700 pages in total. I mean, I'm curious to know what you make personally, as someone who cares about books, because clearly you must to do this job, about your responsibility there that you are the person who is doing this for this writer who is no longer alive. Yeah, um, I, I'm glad you asked about that. I mean, that's really the sort of book of a lifetime for me. It was hard in a way to come back emotionally because like after you've climbed Mount Everest, what do you do? You know, you just like tackle your 37th project. <laughs> that's like, sort of the same as one through 35, like, is that all there is, you know? So this book, I have to say a little bit about what it's about. It's a um, German mother and daughter character that's a male writer, but female main characters uh, and in just unbelievably incredible characters. You so know them and care about them, including the kind of precocious 10 year old daughter, which is a really like, high difficulty level move as a writer. Yeah. If it goes wrong, it's so yeah. terrible. But if it goes right, it's so amazing. So uh, they have emigrated to New York City and they're living in New York now. And now being uh, 1967 to 1968. The reason it's so long is because every day for that year is a chapter of the book. So there are a lot of chapters, but each chapter is this like three or four page miracle of some combination of the mom's memories of the past, day-to-day -day life in New York. They read the New York Times every day. So a lot of them have sort of news stories collaged in or bouncing off the other storylines. So the other thing is that the place where they live in New York on the Upper West Side is three blocks away from where I grew up. So the park that they see out their window on Riverside Drive, and you know, go to and where they meet their first American friends and all this kind of thing is literally the park that I went to every day after school for years of my childhood. And everything about the neighborhood and the subways and all that stuff. I wasn't around in 1967 and 68, but my childhood was 
kind of a lot closer to then than it is to now. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of responsibility, I mean, it's my childhood. It's a German novel, but it's, it's super realistic in details and observant and subtle. So even though it's a German novel, it's kind of the great New York novel. Mm -hmm. It's sort of up there with another country by James Baldwin and, you know, whatever kind of New York novels you want to name. Mm -hmm. For this one, you know, partly because it is so long, there had to be sort of a lot of funding for the project and it, it, it wasn't an easy sell to a publisher. Yeah. So there, it was less about what's my responsibility to it and more like, how can I make this happen? You know, I think it's a great book. I think it's very relevant to our times today. And I think it should be in English and I think it's wonderful to read. You know, what can I do to make this happen? It wasn't, it wasn't so much like there were, you know, 20 potential candidate translators. Mm -hmm. So how mm -hmm. do I stand out as the one who will do the most justice to it? It was like, I was, I was trying to do it. Is this a book that is well-known to German readers or is it less well-known in the, in the original context? Uh, it's quite well-known. It's, um, the author, his name is Uwe Johnson, or spelled Johnson, just like Linda Johnson. The author is very canonical. Um, his first novel, which is much shorter, is kind of regularly on the best books of the century lists in Germany near the top, mm -hmm. taught in all the schools and stuff like that. This one being longer is less read. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, what I do want to say about it is I have met lots of people who've read it and almost all of them to a person say it's the absolute favorite book they've ever read. They've read it four times mm -hmm. and it, you know, it uh, accompanies them through their whole lives. Yeah. And these are not scholars. Yeah. These are like people I meet in New York in yeah. publishing or business or diplomacy or just, you know, whatever. It really is a real living book with a story and stuff you care about and yeah. not like Finnegan's Wake or some right. kind of right. monumental scholarly yeah. thing. Yeah. We'll be back with more of Roman's conversation with Damien Searles. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration or discipline, anything at all, send them to us at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts.
Now let's return to Roman's conversation with Damien Searles. I can't help but feel almost this act of mourning for the books that we don't know about in this culture that are, as you describe, right? Like not, as you say, not oddities or intellectual curiosities like Finnegan's Wake, which are, you know, big and important, but like unreadable. But a book like like Ferrante actually is a good example where it's like a great yarn, a really good story that can just like completely change how you feel about books and is the kind of thing you feel really passionately connected to throughout your life. And there are so many from so many cultures that we just won't see as English readers. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And I mean, that's perhaps more true for English readers yeah. because English is the dominant world language. Yeah. And because related to that, there are proportionally fewer translations into English than there yeah. are out of English. Yeah. Most places around the world will have a better sense of American literary culture and trends than vice versa yeah. because of the dominance of English. Yeah. You know, language is something that really, that changes. So do you, as a translator, have to make your peace with the knowledge that you may not be detecting like some subtle wordplay or some cultural context, even if you're talking about a book that's set in 1967, 1968, which mm-hmm. is not so long before you were born, that there could have been a very specific kind of cultural reference, a very specific kind of turn of phrase, whose meaning is just lost over yeah. the decades. Well, you know, if it's a, something that I really don't feel like I understand, I won't translate it. I mean, I won't agree to do mm-hmm. it. You know, if it's about some like social scene that I have no context for or knowledge of, but most of the books I read, you know, I read them as a reader and they, and I get something out of them. I get a lot out of them. And so if I can convey what I get out of them, then if I do it well, someone will be able to read the translation and get as much out of it as I got out of this great book that I read in the first place. So I don't get too hung up on if there's some like little idiom or little nuance Mm -hmm. that I miss because, you know, I try and catch as much as I can. And if I miss it, I miss it. You know, this is part of the question you asked before about knowing the other language. There certainly is another school of thought where what really matters is how perfectly you know the language you're translating from. And, you know, there are people who kind of brag about like, I grew up on the same street in the same year as this author I'm translating. So that's my language and I totally get it. And yeah, that's great if you are then able to write it in English. So nothing against detailed expert knowledge but ultimately, in my view, you know, the sort of side of the debate I'm on, it matters more if you can, can actually write something that people want to read and that kind of sparks off the page in the way that you want literature to do. Damien, your description of translation as active writing and not as sort of like a technical matter where you're transposing a unit from one language into the next is 
very different from anything I personally have heard. And also, it feels like it embodies like a philosophical difference about the act of translation. Is that something that you've always felt about your work, that it doesn't matter about getting it exactly right? Or is it something that you've come to as you've done this work longer? I think both, but I think you have to start off with a certain carefree or reckless just decision to go for it. And so I think that is an important prerequisite to being a translator, unless you're very much in this kind of technical, I'm the only person in America who knows ancient Albanian, so I'm going to you know, translate the Albanian epic or whatever. Yeah. So I'm in the act of having my most recent book translated into a bunch of different languages. And I got an email yesterday from my Swedish translator. In the book, I refer to a swimming pool as an attractive nuisance, which is a phrase in American law, which holds people who own swimming pools liable for the death of children who wander onto their property and drown in the swimming pool. Right. It's oh, like a very, it's a very specific ter- term. So that's in like inherent vice, you yes, know, the yes, pension exactly. title that exactly. is or, actually a legal term or uh-huh. like eminent domain. It's like, a, it's the kind of thing that sort of makes sense to an American reader or will sound vaguely familiar to an American reader. Who's ever like taken out homeowner's insurance or something like that. And my trans- I, I don't know how to tell my translator what to do with this phrase. And I guess I decided that maybe it just doesn't matter. That maybe it's not really advancing anything beyond my own desire to have used that phrase when I was <laughs> writing the book. Like maybe uh-huh. it doesn't mean anything. Maybe it doesn't carry anything. I've written books as well that have been translated into other languages. And people have sometimes asked me, again, before having the kind of conversation that you and I have been having, like, oh, are you going to translate it yourself into German? The answer being, absolutely not. I don't write in German. Um, And then they're like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Um, Well, are you going to review the translation? And my answer is no, because what I've learned from experience is if it's a good translator, you have to trust them. And if it's a bad translator, it's beyond help and you're not going to fix it. So... There's no upside, there's no gain to me spending my time like checking. Yeah. For your case with the Swedish translator, my advice to you would be to tell them that, but don't tell them what to do. Yeah, yeah. It's up to them. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the kind of texture yeah. they're creating for your whole yeah. book. Yeah. You know, what I feel like as a translator is you decide what's important and then that's what you translate for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If it's snappy dialogue, then maybe you won't use some term that sounds really formal and arcane in English because that breaks the conversation. If it's some kind of, you know, instruction manual, you have to use the exact right term. Or if it's producing a translation for university press of some work of, scholarly significance, then maybe you have to add a footnote saying what this thing is. None of those are failing to translate it. Those are all just picking what you think is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's really up to the translator, not up to you to decide in the Swedish book, 
you know, is that piece of texture. Same with the scissor gate. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can lose the scissor gate and no one will care or no, <laughs> or you can keep it because you think that that adds to the book. Yeah. And so that that's my advice to you. Like yeah. tell them the information, but then it's up to them. Damien, you translated a novel by one of my absolute favorite living writers, who's the French Nobel laureate, uh, Patrick Modiano. The book you translated was a novel called Sundays in August. I personally don't have any language other than English. And, uh, you know, as I just said, Modiano is one of my favorite living writers. And I feel like there are these purists who will say, no, well, you haven't really read him because you've only experienced him in translation, you know, and his body of work is, is so big that it has multiple translators because English publishers have been sort of trying to catch up after Modiano won the Nobel Prize. So I've read your translation of this book, you know, and there's no, I, I don't think there's another one rendering this book, particular book into English. I've read a handful of his other translators and his other books Am I getting Modiano or am I getting this sort of simulacrum of Modiano? Yeah, you know, I think that's a kind of over-defensive reaction to some sort of insecurity that's been instilled in you by this kind of technical vision of, you know, is it 99.7% accurate or is it 99.8% accurate? You know, why wouldn't you be getting Modiano? Again, you know, there is a different layer when you read someone who wrote in English, well, they've been edited and somebody put a certain cover on it and they've been reviewed in a certain way and they exist in the culture in a certain way. And you're either reading it in a course where the professor's framing in a certain way or you're not and the bookstores decided to stock it and promote it in a certain way. And so, you know, you're not in some pure ideal mind meld with the author either. Yeah. I guess the best analogy there would be performing music. If you listen to Glenn Gould, are you listening to Bach or not? (sighs) That is a really tough question. That is a really tough question. Well, there's no real answer, right? Because the answer is, is both like you're listening to Bach as good as you can ever listen to Bach. There's no like better way. Yeah. (laughs) um, Unless you just read the score, but maybe yeah. that's a worse way. Yeah. Or unless you play it yourself, but maybe that's a worse way. Yeah. On the other hand, Glenn Gould is not going to be playing it the same way as everyone else will be playing it. So if you have 10 different recordings of the same piece, you're listening to Bach in 10 different ways, yeah. but you're not like not listening to him. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I would say about the Modiano. Like, how could you better read Modiano? Yeah. I mean, what's the sort of ideal that uh, you're go, failing go, go to reach? Go back in time and be born in 1929, I suppose. But, you know, like, I can't think of another way, really. Um, how do you evaluate a translation, too? That's the other thing, especially with a writer like Modiano, who has multiple mm-hmm. translators. Um, yeah. And I hear people say this all the time. Um, oh, did you like that translation? Did you like this new book? And I, I don't really have a perspective on it because I'm reading, I'm, obviously I'm reading the language and thinking about the the way it's working, but I'm understanding that as the choice made by the author and not the translator, even if it is sort of something that's happening as Mm -hmm. a duet without my realizing it. Right. That's another one of those mysterious questions, right? Because I, for example, judge and feel like I can judge translations, even if I don't know the original text, even if I don't know the original language, you can sort of sense, is this 
artistically motivated stretch of the language or is this some weird deformation of the language where it just doesn't sound right, like people wouldn't say that. Translations from different languages tend to go wrong in ways specific to the languages. So for example, translations from Spanish might sound really flowery because Spanish has a Latinate vocabulary and Latinate words are flowery in English, even though they're not in Spanish, mm -hmm. they're just the words. Mm -hmm. So if you have all this, like the felicity of the maternal, you know, the love of the maternal, you know, then you're like, wait, that's not right. Yeah. Even though felicidad is just happy yeah. Yeah. Um, or happiness or whatever. Spanish isn't one of my languages, yeah. so forgive yeah. <laughs> all of that I just said. But, um, you know, or translations of Chinese poetry can sound like foggy yeah. because they have a different grammar with the subjects and tenses and things like that. Um, and you can just kind of tell if this hasn't clicked. And so I would again encourage you to like, let go of this inner school marm who's telling you you don't have the right to judge a translation. If it's a book you like, then it worked. Yeah. You know, it's good. Yeah. If it's something that like, you're bored and confused, then like it didn't work. Yeah. And it's yeah. true, you may not 100% know, was it the author or the translator? A bad translator can actually make you think that the author is bad, without meaning to, of course. Yeah. But again, you don't have to have this kind of like, I'm not able to judge a translation because I haven't done this or that skill. Mm -hmm. Why not? I mean, you judge every book you read. Yeah. You like it, you don't like it. Yeah. Um, Damien, this has been such a great conversation. I really, really thank you for your time. It's really clarified a lot for me about how I think about translation and really helped me think it through in a fresh way. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. It's, it's my pleasure. if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. 
It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. That was fascinating. I have a bit of experience in the world of literary translation myself, having spent some years in the 1990s working at a tiny publishing company called Women in Translation. But Damien still blew my mind with some of what he said. I really appreciated his attitude to translation, which I think could be summarised as the first priority is getting the vibe of the original work right. Um, Or you could put it another way, writing skill is more relevant to the job than proficiency in the original language of the text. Uh, Would you agree with that? You know, this struck me as a really fresh perspective on translation. Although I should say that I perhaps never really bothered thinking through (laughs) the issue before. You know, it's such a remarkable idea. It seems obvious to say that you can have works in one language by two very different writers. Let's take Henry James and Mary Gateskill. (laughs) So rendering those two books in Arabic would be about a lot more than just getting the individual words right. It's about style and mood and reference and so much else. And so it was really interesting to hear Damien speak of it as that. Yeah, I loved how you asked him about the translator's responsibility, which feels quite profound. But there's also something very generous about the act of being a translator, of using your skills in the service of someone else's ideas. Absolutely. I I could not agree more. I think it's work that you can only do if you truly care really deeply about books. You know, I mentioned in this conversation that I've been corresponding with my Swedish translator, you know, and he told me just this morning that he's also recently finished a translation of Orwell's 1984 from the English into Swedish. Mm. Just the idea of bringing that work into a whole other language, I just find that so daunting and remarkable And as you say, really generous. Speaking of your Swedish translator, I'm so glad that you asked Damien for advice on responding to his queries. Um, When I worked at a different but related publisher, uh, Seal Press, we often got questions from translators about our books. And I remember that the only ones that really felt important to answer were ones that were about proper nouns. Um, I have a very clear memory of receiving a fax from a German translator asking about a Seattle street that came up a lot in a mystery that involves sex workers. It was being used as a sort of synecdoche, but if you didn't know what Aurora Avenue was, it didn't work. So I was glad that they asked about that. But on the whole, it's something that you kind of want to stay away from, as you said, um, or as Damien suggested. Can you share more about the kinds of things uh, your Swedish translator asked about? Sure. Christian, who is my translator, asked me about the word volunteer, which I use in the book in a a botanical context, right? Right. Volunteer refers to a seed that um, takes root where it hasn't been planted. Mm. So that's either an unfamiliar term in Swedish or Christian happens to not know the (laughs) language of gardening. It's a really interesting question, though, and I really liked Damien's response to this particular challenge, which is that, you know, you can't actually do it all. That as you're saying, like, a certain seedy street in Seattle will always mean something to people who live in Seattle Mm -hmm. that can't possibly be imparted to a reader who lives in Tokyo. And and the inverse is true, that when we read, you know, a book by Murakami, 
or a book by Modiano, we may not understand the nuances attached to place name. And, yeah. you know, that's okay. You, you don't get to know everything. Yeah, and maybe it's better if you don't. You don't want to get too caught up in the words, but instead in, in the paragraphs or the pages or the chapters or just the whole vibe. Um, that's kind of, that's how we read books. Um, you mentioned having read several different translators' takes on Patrick Modiano's work. When you were reading the work of different translators, were you kind of aware of their taking different approaches? I'm not sure that I was. You know, Modiano is a writer with a, a sort of blunt style. And the particular spell of his work for me is in how incredibly confusing the narrative is. <laughs> so the language is really direct, I think, to underscore how baffling the stories usually are. You know, and I'm just so pleased that there are so many different translators on the case, you know, helping get a very long backlist into English. It feels like a gift. And, you know, honestly, it feels like a miracle. Yeah. Um, if we could remove any linguistic challenges with the aid of a magic wand is there a book that you would like to translate i would also add that we can use another magic wand to allow that translation work to take no time whatsoever so you can still devote all of your creative time to your own work but okay what what are you going to translate for us you know so many of my favorite books were written in other tongues um i'm thinking of like the sort of ever shifting top 10 list i carry around in my head <laughs> and i think four of them come from other languages. Uh, there's One is Junichiro Tanizaki's The Makioka Sisters, which was written in Japanese. Um, two books by Thomas Mann, Bodin Brooks and The Magic Mountain, are sort of on my top ten. Those were both written in German. I've already mentioned Patrick Modiano. Those were all written in French. Um, Jenny Erpenbeck has a masterpiece of a novel called Go Went Gone, which was also written in German. But the truth is that those books have all been really beautifully rendered for us into English, and they don't need me. Oh, but what a thing it would be to have a Roman alarm translation of something. <laughs> um, in the interview, you mentioned that Americans do not prioritize language learning. Um, I'm curious if your own kids are learning languages or, or plan to when they're a bit older. I mean, I think it's so telling that we heard Damien speak of Sesame Street <laughs> as the first experience of a foreign tongue. It's absolutely true that kids are so porous. And if we had any sense as a nation... Kindergarten instruction would include Spanish or French or, you know, German or, you know, Arabic, Mandarin, like you name it. I just think yeah. it, our, our populace would be so much the richer for it. My older son, who's in sixth grade now, is learning French and he loves it. And he's really a natural, like he's not shy at all. So yeah. he's very eager to jump in and he'll try and pronounce anything. And I think that that particular attitude really helps. Yes, and I definitely. can tell, like, even over Zoom, that his teacher is just delighted with the way that he will just, like, go for it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I would love to have his brother start learning French, too. But then, unfortunately, my entire household, except for me, would be able to speak to one another in French, which seems like it could <laughs> just really be a disaster for me. Well, you know, that just sounds like the perfect language learning motivation to me. I think uh, <laughs> the entire household, Paul in the Francais, would be fantastic. Listeners, if you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Damien Searles for being our guest this week. And as always, enormous thanks to our fantastic producer, Cameron Drews. 
We'll be back next week for a conversation between Isaac Butler and choreographer Annie B. Parsons. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.